Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the NWA Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading experts for a lively discussion on topics related to strategic nuclear deterrence. Our host is Dr. Adam Lowther, Director of Strategic Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views of the hosts and the guests are their own. Welcome into the latest episode of NucleCast. Of course, I am your host, Adam Lowther, and today we are very pleased to have Greg Meyer joining us. Now, Greg is the Senior Vice President of Fluor Mission Solutions, Nuclear and Civil Solutions Business Line. And of course, Greg, like myself, uh, he spent his early formative years in the Navy. He, on, you know, while, while I was, uh, driving uh, destroyers and frigates. He was spending his days below the water surface on fast attack and ballistic missile submarines. And then after retiring from the Navy, he spent many years working in the nuclear enterprise at Hanford, Savannah River, Rocky Flats. He worked on programs and sites there. And then before coming to Fleur, he was one of his jobs was he ran Pantax. Uh, which I've visited many of myself and enjoyed my time back home in Texas. So with that, Greg, thanks for joining us on NucleCast. It's my pleasure, Adam. And uh, and I would say that you might say you're driving destroyers. The submariners would say you're driving targets. So you know. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. We were deployed with the... Uh, with the Eisenhower once and, you know, the submarine, one of ours, one of our fast attacks popped up between us. The, on the, I was on the ramage at the time and be, popped up between us and uh, the Eisenhower and unexpectedly. So uh, I, I can see your point. I'll concede. I'll concede. <laughs> so you're in a, well, let's start I'll, I'll, before we go to sort of what you do with Fleur and, the role of the private sector. Let's start and talk about the Navy. So you were a submariner and you spent time on both fast attack and ballistic missile submarines. And you know, sort of the, you know, you were a cold war era post post cold war era guy. And we're now in a world where China is, you know, the primary adversary and they're, they're a growing adversary. Do you see a lot of differences? Because you've stayed involved and you've been a part of this for more than four decades. Do you see a big difference as we shift from a focus on the Soviet Union and then to a lesser degree Russia and then now to an increasing degree on on China is operating in the East China, South China Sea, the advanced, you know, the possibilities of quantum computing looking down, making the oceans transparent, you know, UUVs that could attack submarines, passive sonar on the ocean's floor, all this stuff. Is this fundamentally changing the submarine world? I I think the answer is no, it's not fundamentally changing it, but I would say it's a constant 
uh, progression of improvement and changes that's going on as the uh, submarine force looks to address the latest threats. And uh, and I should probably qualify all my statements that yeah, you're right. I I have been retired for a while, and I actually was never a, a Pacific sailor and deployed to Westpac. But but having said all that, I think the basic mission of the submarine force is unchanged. I think the biggest thing is that we went from the Cold War to very much of a littoral situation with not as much emphasis on the submarine force. Now you're right with an increasing threat that's being viewed in the Pacific. Uh, the submarine force role is 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 increasing once again. And the biggest change that I think is we don't have enough submarines to address that threat. So I think we're a little bit behind in the building program and the modernization program. Um, that's just where we are and, and it's up to Congress, I guess, to fund and the Navy to build. But uh, so I think one, we need more submarines. Two, I think the submarines we have and we're building are very, very capable. And so I, I think they're multifaceted and you can do a lot of different things with those platforms. Uh, I think operating in shallow water is different than, you know, deep ocean. But at the same time, uh, I think the submarine training is probably more than adequate to address how to operate in those conditions, those environments. But you're right. It's uh, things are different today. They, more, everybody's experimenting with the unmanned vessels, whether they're surface or submerged, and how they're going to deploy those and work with those. And so I think there's emerging tactics, growing things, just things that uh, you would normally expect a warfare, you know, group to keep up with. Yeah, it's sort of that. The only thing constant is change. And I would say very, mu very much so. You're right. If you rest on your laurels, you're <laughs> falling behind. That's for yeah. sure. So you spent time. I want to switch to your time at Pantex, and just as you've spent four decades in in this, you know, in this enterprise, and looking at a production facility facility like Pantex, and you were there sort of at a period where there was a lull, and then sort of starting the ramp up. Do you, and as you now look at Pantex, Kansas City, uh, the even some of the the design labs, but this overall nuclear enterprise, and you look at all of the programs, all of the modernization, do you see the ability of these, particularly the production sites, to be able to recruit the talent, maintain the talent, build the infrastructure, you know, progress through these modernization programs and get these things all done under the constraints that they're, you know, faced with? What are the challenges? Well, the, the challenges as always is, do you, do you have sufficient funding to do everything at once? And the answer is always no to that question. <laughs> and then, uh, and so, okay, so who sets the priorities? And, and then just like in any other endeavor, there's a long buildup time because a modernization program just doesn't happen overnight. Uh, so the entire nuclear security enterprise, which includes the, the laboratories as well as the production plants, uh, I think are very well integrated. And, uh, and at the same time, if there's a glitch anywhere in that system, it shows up at Pentex. Because uh, as I used to talk about is I used to have diagrams that all roads lead to Pantex because at the end of the day, the NNSA gets measured by what Pantex delivers to the Department of Defense. And so, you know, it doesn't make a lot of difference if, uh, if a science lab is a little ahead or a little behind or there's a part not coming out of one of the other production sites. The bottom line is they all need to get to the Pantex plant in time for that deliverable to be assembled 
and uh, and then make it to the Department of Defense. So, so I, I thought I knew something about nuclear weapons from my time in the Navy. When I got to Pantex, I was totally wrong. It's a <laughs> it's a very different job. I mean, technically fascinating. It was really I really enjoyed my time at the plant there, and and I will tell you that the that at Pantex. The, uh, the production teams, I, I always would say, I, I don't know how many production techs they have today at the site, but the number was about 330. And so I said, you know, the 3,000 people at Pantex, the, the 3,500 people, our whole job is to support those 330 production techs to make sure that they can get their web, uh, their mission done and get that unit built. And so uh, I think recruiting people, recruiting the technicians uh, is we can do that and we can train technicians and there's a, there's a pool that we could draw on or that the current contractor could draw on to have that happen. I would tell you that recruiting engineers is harder, not just for Pantex, but anywhere these days. Uh, there's a big demand on, on all engineering resources across the country, not just across the nuclear security enterprise or Pantex. And that's probably where the challenge is. Yeah. And, and as we think about, so do you, do you, see that Pantex and the other production plants, do you think they'll be able to meet, you know, the, the need? Cause most of them were not sized for the sheer number of modernization programs uh, that, that are underway right now. They, they were meant for, you know, one or two programs at a time, not six or seven. Are, are they going to be able to, to make this happen? Six or seven modernization programs at a time would be a challenge for the entire enterprise, not just not just the production plants, but the laboratories as well. You know, the number of people that would work on those at the front end. So I, I think for six or seven programs at a time, I think there will be a challenge for resources and everybody's going to have to compete pretty hard for those. I think in general, the production plants are able to staff to uh, to keep up, but they they don't have any margin. They don't have any room for air at all. And so uh, what we found at Pantex is we would get a young engineer and he or she would work about three to four years at the plant, have a clearance, get lots of experience, and then be very marketable. And, and we would, you know, be rated, if you will, and people would be recruited after that because they're uh, very uh, desirable to other companies and, and they would leave. So um, I think that I think that's possible. But it is a new generation, and you know this generation of young engineers—they didn't grow up in the Cold War, and so it's a different idea of uh, you know what's the national security pride that goes in with a job like that. And but there's still quite a few of those people out there. We just have to find them and make sure that the, we're offering enough good benefits because that's what's driving a lot of it is uh, the benefits program, and that's where the government needs to come up with is make sure the contractors are equipped to attract that talent. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. The one the one downside I always found to uh, Amarillo because I'm from East Texas was uh, the prevalence of hail and hail damage to your truck. That was the downside I always never liked. <laughs> uh, there was a huge hailstorm that happened just before I got there with millions of dollars of uh, damage to houses and. Lots of beat up trucks, and of course, there's lots of beat up trucks all the time. But uh, and we had one storm when I was there, so it's Amarillo is not for everybody. I mean, I found uh, I liked it a lot, and and the nice thing about Amarillo is you, you've got one of everything. You may not have a lot of choices, but you've got one of everything, so it's just fine. And I would tell you the people in Amarillo were just wonderful. We we did enjoy our time there. 
Now, as, as we think about the challenge that Kansas City and Pantex and Savannah River and, you know, Y-12, all of these sites may have in the years ahead, you're now sitting in a role at, in Fluor, which is one of the large defense contractors. And, you know, Fluor does a lot of engineering work. Is there so is there any effort to be more creative in how the private sector supports uh, the nuclear enterprise and NNSA and, you know, potential? I mean, the DOD has tons of contractors that whenever they need manpower, whenever they need, you know, bodies, they bring in more contractors. But in the NNSA production side, it's it doesn't quite work the same way. Is there a way for the private sector, Fluor, and other companies to contribute uh, more actively to try to meet, meet perhaps some of the manpower shortages and that, that you, like, as you sort of identified, that Pantex and others might have? Um, I would tell you that it's uh, there are ways for private contractors and companies to contribute more effectively to the national security mission. And primarily, it, we do that maybe with, with more commercial practices. And now it may seem funny to say bringing commercial practices to a nuclear weapons program, um, because there aren't a lot of those. <laughs> but but we can bring commercial practices to a lot of the supporting programs and run those, I probably think, more efficiently than they may be run today. When it comes to construction and modernization, same thing. You know, a lot of companies can bring in uh, a can you make it a, a greenfield, a brownfield, put a fence around it, and then build it to a commercial standard and then walk out and let the, uh, if there's certain things that have to be streamlined or, or specific for that facility, let them do that after the fact. So there, I think, yes, there are ways that could, that could happen. At the same time, uh, it's, it's a very controlled industry for a very good reason. So the government has a kind of a double-edged sword there, while they might want the contractors to do more commercial practices to bring the price down, at the same time, they need to protect the mission and how it's done, and they can't afford to take a lot of chance and talk, take a lot of risk with the national you know, security deterrent mission. Right. So so there is that, that balance back and forth. Um, I think you hit on it earlier, the skill set that contractors can be successful or the contractors need to be successful for the NSA is very different than the skill set, perhaps that DOD might be looking for. And the DOD is huge; they've got all sorts of skill sets, and they have all sorts of reach they can grab everywhere. Um, the NSA, on the other hand, if if you're not part of the enterprise, and it, it's very difficult to break in because of everything we've talked about before. So I think you have a limited number of contractors. They're all good; they're very successful for the most part. But uh, it's not just something that a, a new company could just decide, oh, I want to go work for the NSA and walk in the door with big ideas because uh, the entry requirements are pretty high. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a fair point. Now, we're about halfway through the show, and I want to take a break. But when we get back, I want to talk about pit production because plutonium pit production is sort of one of those long poles in the tent where we may have some challenges that it doesn't, at least, you know, to my, you know, to my mind, it doesn't seem like we've overcome them yet. So when we get back, we'll talk about pit production. This is Nuclecast. I'm your host, Adam Lowther, and we're with Greg Myers, and we'll be right back. 
This episode of NucleCast is brought to you by the 15th Annual Nuclear Deterrent Summit. Come join NucleCast at the summit on February 13th through 15th, 2023 at the Hyatt Regency Crystal City, Arlington, Virginia. Industry and government experts will be discussing management of the nuclear security complex, stewardship of the nuclear stockpile, arms control negotiations, and strategic policy. Stop by the NucleCast booth to say hello. Executive producer Kimberly Charrington and I will be there interviewing guests for upcoming episodes. You can find a registration link to the Nuclear Deterrent Summit with a 15% discount on the NucleCast website at anwadeter.org slash NucleCast. Okay, we're back on NucleCast. This is Adam Lauderoff, as always, and I'm with Greg Myers, Vice President at Fluor, and we're talking about, or we're about to start talking about, plutonium pit production and the challenges there. So, Greg, what say you on this big challenge of producing sufficient plutonium pits for the weapons we may need in the future? Well, you're right. When you called it the longest pole in the tent, I would say without a doubt, it's the biggest pole in the tent. And it probably has the uh, attention of everybody in the nuclear security enterprise now. Uh, my view is that it's it's the single biggest priority that the NNSA has. And of course, there's they're being addressed at two different sites. So most of the pit production will be at Los, well, all the pit production will either be at Los Alamos or Savannah River. And, uh, and in both cases, they're a little bit different. So at Los Alamos, uh, the existing facility, PF4, has many other missions and tasking going on it today. So they have to balance the, the challenge of upgrading the current structure to increase the pit throughput at the same time, meet all the current missions that are going on inside that facility. Uh, so that's a really big challenge for the, uh, the national lab out there and, and to get through that. And additionally, um, there's the, all the prep work. So they they're the design labs and getting the final uh, designs approved, the, the the stamps and the diamond stamps and all the quality acceptance criteria. So a lot of that design and science and, and, and all that work is going on while the contractor is trying to upgrade facilities and run it all in parallel. That's uh, that's always hard to do, but that's the challenge at Los Alamos. At Savannah River, I'm sorry, you had a question? Well, no, I mean, could you maybe, so you're familiar with Rocky Flats. Could you maybe give a broad overview for those who may not understand the difference in scale from what Los Alamos, for example, is doing versus what we did in the Cold War uh, at Rocky Flats. And sort of, can you just give people a a sense of that these are not the same, they're not even close, are, you know, it's not that we're going to be able to truly ramp up as we did 50 years ago. Yeah, I would. Uh, you're right. I can't I can't give you the numbers. When I worked at Rocky Flats, we were already shut down and we were mostly in the cleanup mode. I did go through building 707, which was the pit manufacturing facility. And so I knew how it worked in those days. But I don't know the exact number or the throughputs. On the other hand, what you say today is is very true. 
the pit production mission today. It's not your father's Oldsmobile from <laughs> from years ago. And so there's different standards on the pits or the designs are are complex to say the least. Uh, the safety standards are extremely high and all the nuclear safety rules are, are very different today than they were in the 50s, 60s and 70s. So it, it's without a doubt a very different mission than those that are familiar with the, the way it used to be done at Rocky. Yeah, I mean, just just by way of example, you know, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but Los Alamos is, is hoping to get to 80 pits per year. And if I recall, we produced more than 50,000 pits at Rocky Flats over the years, not per year, but over the years. So it was magnitudes of order different. It, it is magnitudes difference. And it's it's basically 80 pits per year, as I understand it, total, not all from Los Alamos. Ah. So some of those would also be picked up from Savannah Riverside. Okay, so even, and, even uh, fewer. And the Savannah Riverside mission is different in one sense. They're, they're also taking an existing facility, uh, the one that was built originally as the mission was going to be for mixed oxide fuel production. So they're taking that old MOX facility uh, at SRNS is in charge of actually cleaning it out, upgrading the facility, and then the, the design is in progress. When the design is done, then installing the new equipment in that facility. So we've got two different approaches at two different sites, um, and both of them under a lot of stress to meet uh, the timelines, which uh, the DOD has set, and they're very aggressive. And so it's going to take a lot of effort on the part of the government and the contractors to uh, be successful there. Now, can you maybe give us a sense of the differences over time between trying to do these things today versus doing them, you know, 40, 50, 60 years ago, just in terms of safety standards, requirements, you, you know, all of these many differences that today are much, much more of a challenge to meet than we would have seen earlier in the Cold War? It's it's probably going to be a little bit hard since I wasn't actually involved in the production <laughs> mission at at Rocky. I, I can only surmise and draw on what I saw in you know after it was shut down. But but you're exactly right. The requirements for building, I mean, the the detail that goes into producing and the inspections are still good. But the uh, how you transfer the pit, how you move material from one spot to another, accountability of plutonium and in the material access areas and inventories, uh, as you said, the nuclear safety standards. Uh, today, we have many more tools that we can examine these pits and certify them. Uh, so they get their subject much more scrutiny in today's world than they again in the 50s and 60s. So there's there's no question it's a, it's a much more complicated process. And is it as you look at, you know, Pantex and other facilities and just how they operate? Is it a, a much more challenging environment today than it was during the Cold War, or, do you, or is it a lot of continuity? I would say it's more challenging. I'm not sure if it's much more challenging, but if, uh, you know, I remember when I was at Pantex, we used to be able to look at pictures where technicians would just drive up and park right outside the buildings. You know, those <laughs> days are gone. And so, so the security requirements, everything that goes with it, the increased safety and as we look at all this, um, Pentex has the basin cells. And so they've made lots of improvements in high explosives and how you deal with those things. You, they made, you know, lots of process improvements in the actual production or assembly mission. And so there's more steps that go on. Um, I would tell you that at the end of the day, 
the weapons built in the 50s, 60s, and 70s were good, solid. You know, the when we were doing dismantlements, um, the, it's it's hard because the, the weapons were not built to be dismantled some years <laughs> later. And uh, so they were good quality products in those early days. They're still good quality products. But now we don't test, of course. We do other things. And so the standards are very stringent on production since, you know, you can't say that, oh, if it's a little bit off here, a little bit off there, we'll go test one and see if it works anyway. Those, again, those days are also behind us. Yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't really thought about that. The This, this notion that, you know, we'll just go test to make sure they work. And therefore, now we're much more rigorous than the standards. That's a, that's a great point. Uh, yes, and, and the stockpile stewardship program has been very successful, but again, it's all without testing. And so the technologies that the laboratories bring to the table is very, very impressive. That the things that they can do with uh, little bits of data and and they just pull them all together is uh, is overwhelming to an ops guy like me. <laughs> so as we sort of turn to operations and think about what we really need in the years ahead. Uh, we're modernizing delivery vehicles, you know, new bomber, new yep. Sentinel ICBM, new submarines. On the warhead side, do you see that there's, you know, we, we're modernizing warheads as well. You know, the the 61 is, is getting, a, you know, a, a tail kit. We're, we're doing all these other modernization efforts with, with other warheads. Do you see a requirement for a new warhead in and of itself? Uh, I think the answer is yes. Um, there's a lot of people, you know, we, we actually tried that. We, the, the enterprise, tried that, uh, what was it, 15, 20 years ago with the RRW, the Reliable yeah. Replacement Warhead, I think it was called. It was. And, uh, and Congress basically said no. Um, I thought... That was a mistake because uh, I think the important thing is the stockpile in the nuclear deterrent mission is not going to go away. So if you're going to have a stockpile, uh, why not have the best one you can? And by the way, if you do modernize and you you have a new set of weapons with increased surety, which means that they'll work, and, uh, and increased safety, why wouldn't you want that? Because that allows you to have a smaller stockpile because you don't need a X number of weapons just because you got to cover targets and who knows how many would work. Somebody knows, not me. And, uh, and so instead you can have X minus a certain percentage because you know that the percentage of, of knowing they're going to work has, has gone up. So you could have smaller stockpile, more accurate style stockpile, a safer stockpile. So I would say yes, without a doubt, I think a, a new and improved warhead would be the right thing to do. And one of the things that, I write about um, just had an article come out uh, yesterday in the war zone. So if you haven't read it, check it out. And we look at low yield nuclear weapons and the, the usability of them and the sort of the large arsenal that the Russians have three to 6,000 of these sort of low and ultra low yield weapons. And the, the Chinese are building them as well. So theater, or ta- as we would have called them, tactical nuclear weapons. And the U.S. is really hampered here. We, we have, uh, you know, dial a yield in the 61, um, but we don't have the variety we once had. 
do you see a utility when we talk about new warheads? We often think in terms of strategic because we, we in the U.S. we're generally thinking about strategic nuclear war. Do you see uh, the utility of also building some low yield capabilities uh, that would, might be useful in deterring the Russians and the Chinese in, in this area? Or do you think we should stick to building um, perhaps a new strategic warhead? Can I give you a better answer on that sure. after I read your article? <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> so, uh, so I would tell you as a warfighter, having the biggest hammer you can have is actually what most of the warfighters would like. And so, uh, we, you know, we there hasn't been a lot of discussion on dial of a yield, and there are debates on both sides of whether that's a good thing or not. Uh, I like I said, I haven't read your article, but I'll go look for it. And I think that um, in the past, the answer has always been for for the United States, for the most part, is, you know, we're going to stick with the current strategic yield. The dial yield, is that more tactical? Would we actually use a tactical nuke ever? And uh, and more than a few years ago, we probably would have said no. Today, with the Ukraine and everything that's going on, that's actually in that debate is coming up again. And so uh, I don't know which side I would, well, I, I, I'm tempted to come down on the side I've been before <laughs> just because I'm not informed enough to speak to the, to the others. But, uh, so I, I, like I said, I don't have a good answer from you other than I think it's uh, something that actually needs to be taken a look at. But my personal opinion right now is that, uh, we would not be looking at nuclear weapons for tactical applications, but that's again, my personal opinion on that one. So we're near the end of the show. And as we get to the end, I always want to give our guest an opportunity to have a leave behind. And so as you think about sort of the message you want to transmit to our listeners, uh, what would that message be? What, what do you think they need to know? And is there anything you think they need to know about, I'm particularly interested in how the private sector is contributing to the nuclear enterprise. And is there anything that they you think they might not already know that they ought to know? Uh, what, what is your leave behind? I think the biggest thing for most of us that work in either the defense industry or for the Department of Energy and the NSA is that we, we're proud to do this work. We actually have a high number of retired servicemen and a high number of high number of what we consider uh, patriots in our company but we enjoy and we like to be part of a national security mission and so the message i would leave behind is one we enjoy doing that two we want to work with the government to do it better at every opportunity and so uh so i think some flexibility from the government for private contractors is the next step um in the in the last decade the last two decades uh, we've, we've very much are on the accountability standpoint. And so we're justifying, we're looking, we're double checking. It's, we're just taking too long and adding costs when we do anything. And I think we need to find out, uh, between the contractors and the government, how can we work, how can we work more efficiently to support the national security mission that we both want to be successful on? At Floor, we have a, a motto that, uh, we like, we serve those who serve. So whether it's, uh, you know, the dining hall in Afghanistan or it's the, you know, building something for the national laboratories, uh, 
it doesn't make any difference. We we really do enjoy the mission, and we are very proud to be part of it. All right. Well, Greg Myers, uh, Vice President at Fluor, and a retired submarine captain, and he's done a bunch of other stuff, including running Pantex. Uh, we thank you for your time, and thanks for coming on Nuclecast. We will look forward to having you on the show again in the future. And I also want to thank the listeners, and we will see you on the next episode of Nuclecast. Thank you, Adam. Well, we just had a great interview with Greg Myers of Fluor. You know, it's funny. I was thinking about it. I think whenever I was a young kid, my dad was an engineer at Fluor uh, in Houston. So uh, Fluor is an interesting company. But we talked to Greg Myers. We were talking about the private sector supporting the nuclear industry and about his time at Pantex. And I thought it was really interesting just to hear his thoughts on the need for a new warhead and some of the differences that he sees between historical and where we are now. And it's always for me as a guy who spent his career on the defense side, hearing from the guys who have worked the DOE side, I'm always learning about how that DOE side operates which is very different than DOD. So that's something I always appreciate. Uh, Hope you enjoyed the uh, episode.